Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Investing the help of geographers, we may set eyes on far-off places without so much as leaving home. We transverse impassable ranges, cross rivers and seas in safety. Without provisions, we range over the whole world. With the power of imagination, we swiftly journey east, west, and north, south at a single glance. Johan Blau. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Hello and welcome to Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, and this is Episode 3, The Walking Tour. In the last episode, we began our examination of the geography of Europe by discussing grand philosophical ideas, like, what is a continent? Where is Europe? What is Europe? This time we will start to go into detail with an examination of the geography of Iberia and Greater France. But first, a bit of explanation. Even for those broadly familiar with the outlines of the modern states of Europe, the inner spaces of Europe in the early modern period can be rather bewildering. Anytime you talk about human geography over time, you're going to run into some of these issues. The names change, the borders change, that kind of thing is inevitable in history. There is, however, a more existential issue at hand here. When we in modern times think of a political body that exercises executive political control over a set geography, we tend to think in terms of a state. Particularly in terms of the Middle Ages and the early modern period, the concept of a state is actually pretty anachronistic. For example, though there was a political entity described by observers at the time as France, what that implied to them and to its residents was very different from what it would mean today. I'm going to get more into the whys and wherefores in an upcoming episode, but suffice it to say for now that the thing driving events in the year 1300 was as likely to be the ambitions of the family that ruled one of the regions in France as it was to be the ambitions of the royal family of France that purportedly ran the whole show. So to review, modern state boundaries are confusing because they've moved, they don't actually imply what we think they imply, and actually their constituent parts may end up being more important in the course of our story. And yet, as our friend Mr. Jon Blau would point out, the understanding of geography is core to the understanding of history. 
So how do we address this need without reference to modern state boundaries? Why, with a walking tour. Yes, that great institution of the history of Rome is back, and better than ever, in this, the Wittenberg to Westphalia, History of the Wars of the Reformation Edition, now available to you, yes you, for the low, low price of free. All you have to do is continue to listen to me instead of the demands of your family for love and attention. For those unfamiliar with this blessed institution, worry not, it is relatively painless. The basic concept is that I'm going to introduce each part of our study area in terms of a few salient characteristics. Think of this as a mid-level view, giving a recognizable sketch without getting caught up in too many details. In order to avoid the pitfalls of using state boundaries as a guide, I have split up Europe into a number of regions based on physical boundaries. As I go through each region, I will outline its boundaries, explain its main physical features, and then explain the main political divisions in effect during the year 1300. Along the way, I will try to make note of important trade characteristics and any social or cultural differences across the region. One pitfall of this approach, and it is a big one, is the fact that many of these regions have been used in the past to justify violent conquest. For example, one of my regions is the British Isles, which contains Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and England. These days. Through much of Europe's recorded history, Military leaders of England have used the fact that these areas are all on islands off the north coast of Europe to justify their conquest of their neighbors. I do not want to condone such a view, I just want a pedagogical tool. So, in advance, I apologize to all the subject people of Europe who have been unjustly lumped in with their former oppressors because they happen to be on the same side of a river. So let's get to it. Our first region is Iberia. Iberia is a peninsula formed by the very tip of Europe, and isolated from the rest of the continent by the Pyrenees Mountains. It may help to think of Iberia as a square. The top line of the square is entirely mountainous. The left, or western half of that line, faces the sea, and is called the Cantabrian Mountains. The right, or eastern half, of the top line of the square is called the Pyrenees Mountains, and faces the modern state of France. The part of the sea faced by the Cantabrian Mountains, that western half of the top line of the square, is known as the Bay of Biscay. The part of the sea facing the western side of the square, much of which is occupied by the modern state of Portugal, is the Atlantic Ocean. Towards the western side of the southern part of the square is the Strait of Gibraltar, a narrow neck of water that connects the Atlantic to the Mediterranean. If I were ever presented with the possibility of time travel, I would go back to the day when the bit of land that connected Africa to Europe across this Strait of Gibraltar broke unleashing a decades-long flood that gradually filled up the Mediterranean. Until that day, a history nerd can but dream. The majority of the southern, and all of the eastern sides of the square of Iberia, face the result of that deluge, the Mediterranean Sea. That great inland basin called by the Romans Mare Nostrum, our sea. Even in the year 1300, the trade links established in classical antiquity on this sea were the most important trade links in Europe. The Pyrenees are probably the most famous of the mountain chains in Iberia, but they are not the only ones. Iberia contains a number of other mountain chains, all of which also run roughly east-west. The Iberico and Central chains meet to form a sort of flattened T that crosses most of Iberia and divides it north from south. Further down the peninsula, the Sierra Morena runs east-west in the middle of the southern part of Iberia. It doesn't quite make it to the sea on either side. The Baetic system runs roughly along the southern coast in sort of a crescent. 
As these mountains mostly run east-west, it follows that the major river systems do as well. There are five really major river systems. The Ebro, the Douro, the Tagus, the Guadiana, and the very hard to pronounce Guadalquivir. Of these river systems, the last four all flow east to west as opposed to west to east, which lets us in on something about the topography that underlies not only the rivers, but the mountains as well. Beyond these features, Iberia is generally characterized by a central plateau that gently slopes from the east to the west, with all the mountains and rivers that we've been discussing being on top of the plateau. This central plateau has had several important effects. First, because of the rain shadow effect, it is relatively arid. Second, because it is a plateau, the rivers at the edge have to fall down. As a result, the rivers haven't historically been very important for water-based transportation. This is important because water-based transportation, as many of you are probably aware, was the most efficient form of transportation for trade during the Middle Ages. That's a very important part of our story. If we can take it as a given that waterborne transportation is the most efficient form of transportation for trade, and we understand as well that Iberia's central plateau makes waterborne transportation difficult because of the nature of the rivers that flow off of the central plateau, we can understand that trade within the Iberian Peninsula internally was a difficult proposition during the Middle Ages. This is not to say that the Iberian Peninsula was completely isolated from international trade. Since early antiquity, the eastern and southern shores of the Iberian Peninsula had been integral parts of the trading networks in the Mediterranean. Even this trade, however, was focused close to the coasts by the topography. Again, because this central plateau slopes from east to west, those entering the Iberian Peninsula from the Mediterranean basin would be facing up against the highest edge of it. Because the Mediterranean was the main focus of trade during the Roman Empire and the most of the Middle Ages, this topography left the interior of Iberia relatively hard to access for international trade markets. The northern coast was in many respects even worse in that it was entirely dominated by mountains. Whereas the western coast, while it offered relatively easy access to the interior of Iberia, faced open ocean. And remember, while people during the Middle Ages didn't think the world was flat, they did think that the Atlantic was far too large to cross with the technology at their disposal. From the point of view of a mariner during the antiquity and the Middle Ages, the western coast of Iberia may as well have faced the moon. This gradually changed over the course of the Middle Ages, and there's a couple reasons for it. The first is that the northern and western coasts were great fishing areas, and the papacy's rules regarding the consumption of fish on fast days meant that the pursuit of fish at these ports became an industrial-scale activity. The papacy had a hand in the other big important economic stimulus to the Iberian Peninsula during the Middle Ages, that is the promotion of the Shrine of Santiago in Galicia. We're going to get to where this is in a moment, but suffice it to say that it's at the extreme northwestern tip of Iberia in the Cantabrian Mountains. Now, as a result of the promotion of this as a shrine of worship, 
and the promotion of pilgrimage routes through northern Iberia, there was a huge economic stimulus to the north coast, and this took a ton of different forms. I don't have time to get into a full description of everything that was involved in this, but suffice it to say that everything from tourists to wool to industrial goods were eventually promoted by this traffic. And this traffic was not just confined to the land, but ended up resulting in a rather lively trade network in the Bay of Biscay, between the north coast of Iberia, the west coast of Greater France, and the British Isles to the north. So from an economic perspective, the Iberian Peninsula sort of has three main axes. First is the Mediterranean coasts, second is the northern coast with the Bay of Biscay, and the third is just sort of the general inland region. From a political perspective, the Iberia of the Middle Ages was much more complex than it is now. Spain and Portugal are the modern nations in Iberia, along with Andorra, which at some point I'm going to give a history of because I just love that country. But this was very different in 1300. The first important point is that there was still an Islamic principality holding out in the southern mountains of the Beatic system. As most listeners will know, the Iberian Peninsula was almost entirely conquered by the Muslims during the early Middle Ages. In conquering the peninsula, the Muslims were actually taking it away from a previous round of invaders, the Vandals, and so they called their new possessions collectively Andalusia. A very few small Christian principalities had survived the conquest by establishing themselves in the Pyrenees and Cantabian Mountains in the north. These kingdoms were jealously independent and fought each other regularly, and sometimes merged, but they were only actively expansionistic to the south. As a result, the political entities that we see in 1300 were generally elongated in a series of great north-south strips, as each state steadily advanced south at the expanse of the Islamic states. I said, say generally, because some states were cut off from the south by their rivals, and these were often then swallowed by their rivals as they no longer had the ability to expand, gain more power, and continue to compete with their rivals. So, in 1300 we had Portugal, roughly where it is today, along the west coast of the peninsula. If you've ever wondered why Portugal was this weird north-south strip, that's why. Just to the north of Portugal, there's that little roughly boxy part of Spain that juts over to the Atlantic coast. This is Galicia. Galicia had been an independent country, but obviously with the creation of Portugal, its southern access was cut off, and eventually it was absorbed by its neighbor, Leon. As one would probably expect, Leon was the next country over, and once it included Galicia, made sort of an upside-down and backwards capital L. Further to the east was Castile, a major power that had begun to cut all its rivals off from the south. It formed sort of a very skinny A shape. Further east from Castile was Aragon. In addition to being a near homophone of a character from The Lord of the Rings, Aragon was one of the countries that was being progressively cut off to the south by Castile. It formed a narrow V shape. Further east from Aragon, and along the Mediterranean coast, lay Catalonia. Catalonia had gained great wealth from its position on the eastern Mediterranean coast of Iberia. Not only did it have direct access to the Mediterranean trade routes of the Middle Ages, but it also controlled the Ebro River. There is an exception to every rule, and the Ebro is the exception to the rule that I have stated previously about the rivers of Spain not really being navigable. 
The Ebro River is located along the southern foothills of the Pyrenees Mountains, and is to the northeast of the central plateau that characterizes the main topographic feature of Spain. As such, it has no fall line to go over, and is navigable for much of its course. This gave the Catalonia of the Middle Ages a great importance in international trade. It had a comparatively larger hinterland than the other cities on the east coast of Spain, but it had the same great access to the Mediterranean trade routes. It also controlled some of the more easily accessed passes over the Pyrenees Mountains, meaning that it had good land route access into greater France. This wealth and power had allowed it to begin conquering some of the islands in the Mediterranean. In the north, between Castile, Aragon, France, and the Atlantic Ocean, was the tiny kingdom of Navarre. This predominantly Basque kingdom had possessions on both sides of the Pyrenees, as did Catalonia. I call the next region Greater France because that region northwest of the Alps just really doesn't flow off the tongue. Greater France is defined by the Pyrenees in the Mediterranean to the south, the Bay of Biscay in the Atlantic to the west, the English Channel in the North Sea to the north, and the Rhine River and the Alps to the east. Many commentators throughout history have called the area the Pentagon, referring to the fact that it's got roughly five sides. Uh, this is actually a pretty apt description, although the sides aren't flat sides, they are concave. Uh, the result is that the area is sort of a cross between a pentagon and a star. From a topographical standpoint, the main difference between Iberia and Greater France can be heavily oversimplified in that previous discussion we had about the mountainous southern highlands of Europe and the great alluvial plain to the north. While Iberia is a relatively mountainous place as a result of the direct impact of the African plate on the underlying microplate, Greater France is relatively flat, with some mountainous regions in the south, but generally sloping gently away to the north. It would be wrong, however, to say that Greater France has no topography. Let's start at the south of the country as we look at it. Along the Mediterranean coast of France, there is a small plain hemmed close to the sea by mountainous uplands. This is the area that we will discuss later as Languedoc and Provence. From a topographic, economic, and cultural standpoint, this plain has much in common with the eastern coast of Iberia that we've talked about. This plain is separated from the rest of France by the Massif Central Mountains. While not as imposing as the Alps or the Pyrenees, these are rough, rocky mountains. From a geological standpoint, the relative smallness of these mountains show that the impacts with the northward movement of Africa have been less direct, but they have been felt. The Massif Central is separated from the Pyrenees by the Arbonne River Valley. While not a very long river, the Arbonne is navigable for most of its length, and its headwaters come very close to the headwaters of the Garonne River a river which flows into the Atlantic. The close proximity and navigability of these two rivers creates a pretty convenient east-west pass between the Mediterranean coast of southern France and the Atlantic coast of western France. To the east, separating the Massif Central from the Alps, is the Rhone River Valley. The Rhone River is one of the great rivers of France, but in many ways its valley can be said to belong to two rivers, the Rhone and its main tributary, the Saône. The Rhone's headwaters are at Lake Geneva in modern-day Switzerland. From there, it sort of meanders through the Alps to the west for a little ways until it comes to the steep edge of a narrow valley. 
This is the Rhone River Valley, and from there the Rhone River flows almost due south through this narrow, fertile-bottomed valley, straight to the Mediterranean. At around the point where it enters the Rhone River Valley, the Rhone meets its main tributary, the Saone. The Saone's headwaters are far to the north, and if we were to follow it upstream, we would notice that after a little ways of continuing north, it begins to curve slightly to the northeast. In this way, it wraps around much of the northwestern portion of the Alps. The upland areas to the northeast of the headwaters of the Saone contain a number of interesting features. The principal feature, and the source of the Saone itself, is a small group of mountains known as the Vosges Mountains. These mountains are separated from the Alps by a feature known as the Belfont Gap. This gap is a relatively flat area through which modern engineers have built a canal connecting the Saone with the Rhine, allowing the navigation by boats from the Mediterranean to the North Sea. Though this certainly wasn't the case during the Middle Ages or even the early modern period, the Rhone River Valley has presented an important trade route since antiquity. This is partly because the rivers are navigable for much of their length even without canalization, but also because the relatively gentle slope of the valley creates a pathway into the interior of Greater France and Europe. Now let's go back for a moment to the area where the Saone River started to curve around to the east. To the north west of that curve is an area called the Morvan. In many ways, this area is as rugged as the Vosges, but without the height to qualify as actual mountains. Near the middle of the Morvan is a tiny little village called Jean-Circure. My grandmother is from Jean-Circure, and it is a very lovely place. So, between the Massif Central, the Vosges, and the Morvan, we're basically talking about the entirety of the mountainous terrain in France. There's one exception. The Breton Peninsula doesn't contain anything we would call mountains. However, it is extraordinarily rocky, and the middle of the peninsula could really be considered a highland region. So, since the rest of Greater France is so flat, except for these hilly regions, the defining features of Greater France turn out to be its rivers. So most of the rest of the tour is going to be based around defining these river areas and their main features. Let's start with the Rhone, which I have already mentioned. The southern reaches of the Rhone are defined by, the by their Mediterranean climate, and the river serves as an important north-south passage between the southern coasts of France and the inland areas through the Massif Central and the Alps. This area's importance goes back to antiquity, and its name, Provence, gives us the modern English word province. The word province can furthermore be taken to describe how the area was thought of in the Roman Empire. While far from the political center of gravity of the empire, the area was valued for its economic importance, providing raw materials, fish, and industrial products. East of the Rhone, along the southern coast and heading towards the Pyrenees, is an area called Languedoc. This region was once a prosperous part of the Roman Empire, and preserved enough of its own culture that it served as a cultural counterweight to the north of France for much of the Middle Ages. The name Languedoc refers to the specific dialect of French spoken in that region, and more specifically, the way they say the word yes, oc. This is as contrasted to those who speak the northern French dialect, who would pronounce the word yes as oi. 
Northwest of the Rhone, across the Massif Central and near the Morvan, are the headwaters of the Loire. The Loire flows to the west, and is a very important region in the history of France. It became one of the main seats of power of the monarchy, and was the region that most directly bridged the northern part of France to the southern part of France. To the south of the Loire is Aquitaine. It doesn't have any really major rivers, but its presence along the Bay of Biscay has made it important in trade, as has the Garonne River, which we have already discussed connects it to the Mediterranean, via the Aude. The area also contains several important passes over the Pyrenees. Historically, the region was heavily ethnically Basque, and modern Basque separatists continue to claim parts of it as part of their Basque homeland. This area, which includes the Kingdom of Navarre, which we already discussed during the Iberian section, developed a unique border culture during the Middle Ages and beyond. Those who lived in this area had to make a living out of very mountainous terrain, but they had access to the sea, so fishing and trade were important, as well as smuggling and trade over the mountain passes. During the Middle Ages, the Basques were also variously known as Vosques and Gosques, and so the region eventually became known as Gascony. This forms roughly the southern half of what I've called Aquitaine. Though, as I've said, the southern portions of Gascony are rather mountainous and hilly, the northern portions, and the, definitely the northern half of Aquitaine, is very fertile and produces a lot of very good wine, which became very important when the British monarchy controlled this region. During this period, the trade in Gascon wine to England became one of the key features of the maritime trade over the Bay of Biscay. It is obviously not a coincidence that Biscay and Basque are very similar words. North of the mouth of the Loire is the Breton Peninsula. Culturally rather distinct from mainland France, many Bretons spoke a Gaelic dialect rather than a French dialect. The peninsula itself is very hilly and rocky, which made for a number of good ports but very rough terrain for agriculture. Between the unique culture, the inhospitable terrain, and the easy access to the sea, for much of the Middle Ages, Breton seemed to have had a reputation for wildness and antipathy for the central government. This was often expressed by the popular acceptance of career paths that normal society would probably consider less than savory. Piracy is a prime example, although salt smuggling was probably much more common. This situation was certainly encouraged by an internal trade policy that heavily taxed salt, one of the few real products of the Breton landscape. The Breton Peninsula is easily the most geographically prominent peninsula in Greater France, as it juts out far into the Atlantic from the northwest corner of the mainland. Just to the Breton Peninsula's east is the other most geographically prominent peninsula in Greater France, and probably one more famous historically to Americans, the Cotentin Peninsula of Normandy. This is the location chosen by the Allies in World War II for the D-Day invasions. This choice was made because the Cotentin Peninsula is the second narrowest point in the English Channel, as the peninsula juts out into the channel. But Normandy's history is far more interesting and varied than just its incidental place as the site for one of the great battles of World War II. Most of this history unfortunately needs to be left out of our podcast, as it falls during the Middle Ages and not during the early modern period. I will say that it was dubbed Normandy very early in the Middle Ages, after the settlement of Vikings there at the totally not coerced invitation of King Louis the Simple. Normandy is a lovely country, full of apple orchards and dairy farms, and the apple brandy they make, Calvados, will just blow your boots straight off. It's very like upstate New York, or the flatter portions of New England in many ways. Now, 
This may come as a surprise to most Americans, but the central feature of Normandy is not the Cotentin Peninsula, the battlefield, and all the American tourists. It is in fact the mouth of the Seine, which runs through the middle of the region. In many ways, the Seine is for northern France what the Rhone is for southern France, a long, navigable river that provides easy communication into the interior. The Seine and a nearly bewildering number of tributaries drain a massive inland watershed that stretches from the Cotentin Peninsula to the Morvan and around in a huge cone that covers much of the interior of what we consider the modern state of France. Of course, the chief man-made feature of this area is the city of Paris, which became the seat of the French monarchy relatively early and became a major commercial center by the 12th century. The area north of the Seine watershed is drained by a number of smaller rivers. The area is fertile, commercially important, and damp to the point of marshiness. The most salient feature of the region is the Pas de Calais, a sort of low, stubby peninsula that kind of swells out into the English Channel. This is the first most narrow portion of the English Channel, the second most being the Cotentin Peninsula that we discussed just moments ago. This area had a lot of natural advantages for trade. The English Channel provided a natural oceanic sea route, while the rivers that went inland provided natural communications to a agrarian hinterland. These natural advantages, combined with the ready access to the mouths of the Seine and the Rhine rivers, which weren't too far up the coast in either direction, meant that this entire region between the Seine and the Rhine was a bustling trade center. Of course, the greatest of the rivers of northern Europe, never mind greater France, is the Rhine. The headwaters of the Rhine are located high in the Swiss Alps. It flows north for a ways, and then flows gradually around to the west, and in so doing it forms the border between the state of Switzerland and the states of Austria and Germany. Of course, these are the modern states. When it reaches sort of the, the halfway point of the northern border of Switzerland, it turns north, and then flows down out into the great northern European alluvial plain. For the purposes of our story, it is interesting to note here that, as we've said earlier, once it flows down from the Swiss Alps and begins flowing north, it is separated from the headwaters of the Rhone by the Vosges. Its northern flow is at first somewhat north-northeast, and then about halfway down its length it turns north-northwest, and then flows out to the North Sea. In the process, while it is often navigable, the Rhine is never neat or orderly. It takes a lot of twists and turns on its own, and probably most importantly, it has a huge drainage basin, both in terms of tributaries towards its upper reaches, and then in terms of splits towards its lower reaches as it forms a massive delta. The impact of humans on this delta can be seen far back not only in the historical and archaeological record, but also in the geological record. While Europe was once covered by a dense forest, the activity of humans in clearing the landscape for agriculture has increased the sediment load of the Rhine over the years. This has resulted in a massive increase in the delta. The relatively recent phenomenon of humans creating dikes and draining marshes in order to further extend the delta just underscores the point. The lands in this delta are very similar both uh, geographically and culturally to the lands in northern France that we just examined. The land itself is damp to the point of marshiness, extremely fertile, and very important in trade. This last point was often underscored in the delta. The fertility of the land would allow for great food production, which would allow for great bursts in population. 
while the ever-presence of water would restrict the ability of the population to expand into new lands. This meant that sailing and trade was the only way to get in new food. This delta region contains the modern states of Belgium, Holland, and Luxembourg, as well as Germany and France. The part of the Rhine that's away from the delta, but below the Alps, is called by many observers the Middle and Lower Rhine. This area is defined by a large number of very important tributaries, but I'm not going to go into them because this is already stretched on rather long. Suffice it to say that this region is much more like the Seine and the Loire watersheds than the swampy areas along the North Sea. For the most part, these areas are relatively flat or defined by rolling hills. They're rich agricultural areas separated by small patches of forest. I think for many of us with an interest in history, the place of the Rhine in the popular historical imagination of Germany is pretty well known and is somewhat akin to the way the Mississippi is thought of in the United States. As a result, I may have raised some eyebrows when I chose to use the Rhine as the borderland between Greater France and Greater Germany. Certainly, the closer you get to the Rhine River, the more Germanic everything starts to get, and the less French it seems. I would argue that this is a false dichotomy, and I think the residents of the modern Low Countries would agree with me, although they might not appreciate being lumped in with Greater France. To explain what I mean, I think we need to start taking a look at the political boundaries of Greater France during the year 1300. By modern standards, the area was a mess. In the years following the breakup of the Empire of Charlemagne, the Capetian monarchy, which would eventually become the French monarchy, secured its rise to power by granting land to relatives, loyal supporters, and the occasional angry Viking. Within a few generations, the loyalties of these dukes, if they ever had any, became questionable, but the land grants had come with extensive political powers. This situation was compounded by the fact that no one really knew what the actual territory of the Western Franks was, as in the process of the semi-amicable breakup of the Carolingian Empire, no one had really bothered to set boundaries properly. So, even though the French monarchy might at times claim everything from the Pyrenees to the Rhine, they often controlled nothing other than the area immediately around Paris. As a result, much of the Middle Ages was spent in a glacial process of gradually taking back territory that the monarchy theoretically already owned. This was done by legal maneuvers, political pressure, the odd crusade, and many, many strategic retreats. This was not an act of out-and-out -out conquest, but nor was it an act of peaceful, carefully considered legislation where everyone got together and decided to centralize the country. The process was one of a gradual, low-intensity war in all directions, but modern observers really have a hard time understanding this kind of warfare. I'm going to cover it in more detail in a later episode, but suffice it to say for now that it involved a very small number of people and a very small portion of society's resources. Though, of course, it was life and death for the people directly involved. By 1300, the monarchy had secured most of the western half of its territory, but with three huge exceptions. Normandy and Aquitaine were controlled by the British royal family while the Breton Peninsula was still controlled by a rather independent-minded noble family. Nonetheless, things were looking up. The south of the country had largely been secured thanks to the happy accident of the Albigensian Crusade. This had occurred when the Cathar Heresy, a belief that we will be examining at further length in a later episode, began to hold sway in Languedoc, that other great cultural and political epicenter of Greater France. The Pope declared a crusade which the monarchy supported with a rather extensive amount of brutality. 
when the blood had finished flowing, the power of the South was broken for good, and the monarchy had secured most of its territory. In the East, things were not so good. As we've discussed previously, the breakup of the Carolingian Empire left this eastern border very poorly defined. In fact, if the Carolingian Empire had stayed together, the plan was for the strip of territory encompassing the Low Countries, the Swiss Alps, and northern Italy, to be the territory under the direct control of the Holy Roman Emperor, with the other territories being controlled by lesser monarchs. When this system fell apart, and the Holy Roman Emperor took his title into Germany, the status of the border region was very much up in the air. As we will see throughout the Middle Ages, those in control of territory and border areas were always in a position to secure large amounts of power, as they were less constrained by inconveniences like technically being on the same side as their neighbor. The odd change of allegiance, whenever it was convenient, helped with this process. They were also often able to raise castles and standing armies with the active encouragement of the monarchy, as opposed to the mild disapproval shown to other noble families. In addition, there were some serious cultural differences. As we've discussed previously, these northeastern borderlands tended to become more and more Germanic the more close to the Rhine you got. At the same time, the increasing wealth of the cities along the North Sea, particularly in the Rhine Delta, had begun to translate into cultural and political power over their hinterlands. Given the time period, anyone looking to see a proto-nationalism among the low countries of the Rhine Delta will be disappointed. There was no confident demand for independence or the assertion of their rights as individuals. However, they had become an important political piece on the chessboard of this region. So between the political headaches of the French monarchy, the legal uncertainty created by the end of the Carolingian Empire and persisting into the Middle Ages, and the increasing cultural and political power of the free cities along the North Sea, there ended up being ample room for local noble families to maneuver and create independence for themselves from either side, from the Holy Roman Empire or the French monarchy. And it's not like this should be viewed as a subversive or revolutionary state of affairs. In many ways, this was just the way it had been in this region for many centuries by the year 1300. I'm not going to go into every polity, every free city, and every duchy controlled by every little noble family in this region. However, there is one that I do need to talk about. The thousand-pound gorilla in the room in this region was Burgundy. Today, if you look at a map, Burgundy is well within the borders of France. And I think that should tell you just how fluid the borders in the east were in the Middle Ages. There had briefly been a kingdom of Burgundy before Charlemagne, and it was refounded after the breakup of his empire. Though this kingdom was in many ways as short-lived as any of the other political arrangements tried out in the wake of the death of Charlemagne, it persisted as a legal entity within the Holy Roman Empire, except that most of its territory was on the western side of the Alps. Being thus closer to the protection of the French monarchy than they were to the retribution of the Holy Roman Empire, many pieces of this territory would gradually break off and join the French monarchy. These were considered important pieces of territory by the French crown, but they were in this border region as we've discussed, and so the French crown often had trouble exerting direct control. Furthermore, not all of the historic kingdom of Burgundy had gone over to the French. Half of it remained within the Holy Roman Empire. This raised a legal dispute which would have major historical significance. The French monarchy considered that the most important parts of the territory had come over to them, and therefore they should own all of the territory. As one would expect, the Holy Roman Emperors disagreed. 
the part of the Kingdom of Burgundy that had stayed within the Holy Roman Empire, which was now known as Lorraine, was considered by them to be a core component of the Holy Roman Empire, and would continue to be so for many, many years. However, the major ramifications of these disputes lay in the future. In the interim, the family that had been put in charge of Burgundy by the monarchy had consolidated its position substantially. Protected from the Holy Roman Empire by the French monarchy and profiting by the relatively advanced commercial administration of the French monarchy, the Dukes of Burgundy amassed extraordinary wealth. They also amassed rather significant political marriages, and through these marriage alliances gradually took over vast amounts of territory on both sides of the border with the Holy Roman Empire. In the previous century, these dukes had been strong supporters of their king, and their growing power was felt to benefit the monarchy. But by 1300, that power had grown to the point that the Burgundian court was considered the most fashionable in Europe, and the French monarchy was beginning to look a little bit askance at the great power that had been amassed by one of its formerly greatest supporters. In summary, the political situation in France in 1300 was in a great state of flux. The monarchy was pushing hard to centralize and reunite its supposed holdings, and was making progress in the west, north, and south. But the English monarchy still held large territories in the west and north, while the Burgundians, who were supposedly vassals of the French king, were making the most of the anarchy in the border areas. As we are approaching the 40-minute mark, let's end our walking tour here. Today, we have introduced the concept of the walking tour, and reviewed the geography of Iberia and Greater France. In two weeks, we will be covering the British Isles, Scandinavia, and the Southern Baltic. I need to thank Tickles the Tiger for reading my opening quote, and if you would like to join his illustrious company, please do not hesitate to contact me via my Facebook page or by email. As always, much respect to Nautasurf for allowing me the use of their music. Bye for now! Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.